Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast about innovation and equity in global health. In this episode, we are profiling a new documentary from PBS's Nova, Ending HIV in America. Now, PBS Nova is the most watched primetime science series on American television, and is also known to many of our viewers and listeners around the world. PBS's Nova, Ending HIV in America, is produced by Nova, the Global Health Reporting Center, and HHMI Tangled Bank Studios. Check your local listings for when it can be watched, and you can find out more about streaming availability at pbs.org nova and via the PBS video app. You'll find those notes in the show notes as well. So, Ending HIV in America. It tells the intertwined stories of the incredible science and the extraordinary bravery in the community that have brought us, at least in the United States, possibly, to a point where we may dare to ask that question, can we end HIV in America? And joining me to attempt to answer this and to talk about the documentary's other themes is the director and two of the participants, dare I say, stars of the documentary, and let me introduce them to you now. First up, Shion Maitra, a queer POC director and screenwriter, educated at Columbia University's MFA film program. Shion was born in India, and he's lived in Dubai, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, London, and Chicago. He has directed and edited many short films that have played around the world. Shion, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. Great to see you and um, really looking forward to, to hearing your journey. Um, we're also joined by Tommy Williams, who is um, the linkage and retention coordinator at the University of Alabama in Birmingham uh, Medicine Speciality Care Department. Um, and Tommy is also the president of Take Birmingham. Take standing for transgender advocates, knowledge, and empowering. Have I got that right, Tommy? Absolutely. Absolutely, you have. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And you're calling in from Birmingham, Alabama, right? right I in am. The heart. Yes, absolutely. That's Birmingham, Alabama, USA, of course. Yeah, not Birmingham, <laughs> West Midlands. Don't be fooled by no, my accent. No. <laughs> and last, and by absolutely no means least... Uh, San Francisco's very own Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is um, uh, the medical director of the San Francisco General's um, uh, HIV clinic, the iconic Ward 86, um, a professor at UCSF, University of California in San Francisco, but also the director of the UCSF Gladstone Center for AIDS Research, Hello, Monica. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and, and for doing this documentary. It's important. Now, where are you calling in from? Because you are not in San Francisco as we speak, are you? <laughs> no, there is a HIV meeting in Salvador, Brazil. So I'm calling from here where um, a lot of uh, Brazilian doctors are getting together after two and a half years of the pandemic to, to review best practices for HIV treatment and prevention. Well, it's really great you're doing this because after this period of COVID, it's really great that we can start getting you know, back together and start uh, sharing the fruits of, uh, of the knowledge, this rapidly moving HIV field. And that's what we're going to get into. Um, if I could start with... Uh, just understanding and sharing with our listeners and viewers a little bit of your journeys into the world of HIV. Um, and, and Cheyenne, perhaps we could start with you. Um, what's your background? What got you interested in documentary filmmaking? Well, documentary filmmaking, in all honesty, was something that I sort of fell into after film school. Um, it was the first uh, opportunity that I got, um, and, I, and I leapt at it. Um, and it, you know, documentary, it, it just has so many different challenges and different um, modalities uh, through which you have to tell your story, which is very different from fiction, which is kind of what you get trained in in film school, um, that it was very interesting. You know, you, you can't, you really cannot 
it's not controlled. You know, it's organic and it's real and it's very true. You, you, you know, you're faced with the harsh realities. You're not recreating anything. Um, and there's something very stark about that. Um, and that's, that's what um, got me to stay in documentary, really. Um, and it's been, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a very interesting journey uh, for, for a number of years that I've been, been in documentary. So, so why HIV? What drew you to directing a documentary about where we stand with the HIV response? Well, that, that's actually an interesting question because a couple of reasons. Um, one was definitely, you know, I was born um, in 1985, so right in the middle of, uh, of the epidemic. But, you know, by the time I had reached sort of maturation and sort of sexual maturation, um, HIV wasn't a death sentence um, anymore. You know, uh, it was, uh, you know, the triple cocktail had come out. It was not, you know, it was not killing um, especially gay people, you know, in, in, in hundreds. Um, so... But you knew about it. You growing up, you know, growing up gay, you knew about it. You know, when I was sort of a, a closeted gay in high school, this was the early two thousand, so you couldn't really, you know, no one came out. Uh, there was no one came out in high school, so I didn't either. But you know, you you knew about it. You knew a lot about it, and you also knew, you know, um, being gay. Where are you going to get it? You know, people people were automatically under the assumption that you know you're. Uh, you're going to come face to face with uh, HIV very soon, and you know you're 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 gonna if if you don't get it, you're you have you're at risk of getting it. Um, now, and so you know you learn as 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 a as a gay man, you sort of learn about HIV because um, it really wasn't that uh, back in the past. Um, and I think there was a there was a certain level of survivor's guilt, really, that you know, if I had I been born ten years ago, they definitely could have been me. Mm. Um, so there there is that sort of uh, uh, feeling of uh, gratitude that you know I I as a gay man didn't have to um, face the hardships of that that uh, the people in the eighties did, the LGBT folk in the eighties um, did. Um, and so I think it's very important that we keep telling the story. We, you know, there are many lessons to be learned. There are many uh, parallels to be drawn. So, you know, the story cannot be forgotten. Um, and it was such a seminal part of, uh, of history that it, it, that it needs a follow-up really. People, yeah. people don't know, people don't know about PrEP. People don't know about a lot of these, uh, um, advances that we've had. No, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, Monica, it, it, it makes me think, y you and I have spent our careers in HIV, and um, I'm sort of really intrigued to know what drew you into the field. But there was one thing as I was preparing for this um, podcast, I was thinking of a European doctor who will remain nameless, but we, we all know him, and who said he could not understand in the mid-2000s why anyone would want to, uh, from, a, uh, from a healthcare provider perspective, want to be involved in HIV. It was basically done because we had antiretrovirals. And I know you don't think that. So, so what drives you? What makes, what makes you um, so, so passionate about HIV? You know, I think the things for me is that this is actually an infection of social justice, of stigmatization, of poverty in many areas of the world. It's actually completely interwoven, HIV, with our history of how we treat other human beings. And so you can have the tools all you want. You can have prevention, treatment, and you can't get it all together and end AIDS unless you apply those tools equitably unless you think about the conditions of people's lives that make it so they're not going to come out and tell people that they could be at risk for HIV and take PrEP. Um, and I grew up in a, in a pretty conservative state as an Indian American. Um, when I was um, growing up, I felt stigmatized for kind of no reason except for being brown. And I thought a lot and a lot about stigmatization for no reason <laughs> um, and how that impacts health and healthcare seeking. And so we're nowhere 
uh, near done until we actually work on societal issues and, and, and social justice. And so there's an, it's incredible science. This is what the documentary is about. The science is amazing. We have so many tools, but tools are tools like in a, in a box in a cabinet, unless you can work as hard as you can to apply them and want, and want people to want to take them. I, I agree. I, I think what has really interested me over the, the last few decades um, has been how we, how we provide these innovations to communities that have been largely ignored by, um, by public health systems, or, or, or indeed not just public health, but, but educational, political, all sorts of parts of society. So that absolutely resonates with me. And it sort of, Tommy, brings us I, I think fairly and squarely to you. I mean, you know, you truly are on the front line of tackling the stigma and discrimination that is associated with HIV that perhaps is not seen in other infectious diseases. And and I wonder if you could sort of share your story of how how you came to be in this fight. Oh, thank you so much for that question. And thank you, uh, Monica and Cheyenne, for sharing um, your experience as well and why you do what you do. I found it quite, um, first I'd say, uh, informative uh, to hear where Cheyenne basically expressed that there was an, I, well, what I heard, an adequate level of education uh, with uh, him coming up with the knowledge of HIV. And Monica expressing that maybe there's a, a lot of, some room um, for more education in the work that she's doing. And, and I completely agree with that. Uh, I know coming up for me, uh, there was no talk about HIV in my community. People didn't talk about it. And if they did, it, was, um, it wasn't in a positive and, and informative, preventative way. Um, well, maybe it was. It just depends on how you take it. And um, I grew up um, in, 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 I grew up hearing that because I was born in 78, so I'm 43 years old still in November. I will You're be a baby. 44. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so, but by the time um, HIV was, had, the conversation of HIV had reached my community, um, I was just into my teens and I was learning that I will be an HIV positive individual because I was someone who, um, was queer, although I didn't identify as queer, but, you know, looking back in retrospect, I was quite queer. And, um, but I, it was, having an HIV diagnosis was attributed to my future and, and how I will experience, um, you know, uh, navigating life. Um, and so, sadly, that ended up being my truth. Um, very early on, I, I think of, <laughs> In like '99, I, I think is when I, I got my HIV diagnosis. Um, and so, but what made me want to do this work is um, not so much of the resistance that uh, my community was giving to knowing about HIV and just really having fruitful conversation about um, how it's damaging our community, but seeing how my community was affected by it and there were no role models and and because there was no conversation people were dying people had no one to help them um live thrive and or transition and i found myself as a young individual 17 years old 18 years old doing this for my community saying that's okay i love you giving my friends hugs and and making sure they make it to their appointments like stealing my mom's car so that I could make sure that my friend can make it to an appointment. Like, I remember this. And I just told myself that when I have the capacity to do more uh, and to bring more to my community, then I will do that. And I made that promise to myself, not knowing that um, I would also be one of the individuals that would um, end up having a positive HIV diagnosis. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating, and it does bring us onto the documentary, but what you described, Tommy, could have been, frankly, the experience um, that many in my community had, um, you know, young gay Londoners 
in the, the late 1980s. We were doing exactly the same thing. You, you spoke about stealing your mum's car. I'm thinking about um, uh, all the taxi rides that, that, that I was involved uh, in organising for folks to get to the, the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and um, making sure that we, we, we didn't uh, enter um, uh, by the, you know, by, by the, by the HIV clinic sign. So there was that, that degree of, of privacy. Um, yeah. yeah. So it, it sort of brings us to the PBS Nova, um, ending HIV in America documentary. Shion, why, what is the story that you were seeking to tell? Um, uh, the story is sort of twofold. Um, uh, it's sort of well, it, it, on a broad um, on a, in a in a broad view, it's uh, sort of uh, the history of AIDS. You know uh, how it came, um, how it sort of stopped being a, a death sentence, and it really was reduced. No one was. I, I don't want to say no one, but the deaths were reduced significantly and it became HIV, you know. Um, and looking forward, uh, where are we going with the uh, with the epidemic? Are we do we have the tools that are necessary in the toolbox? Because a lot of people um, uh, think that it's over, you know, um, and I, I know Dr. Fauci keeps saying that on, on, on TV as well. It's not over, but people if people in positions of power uh, people that can really make a difference uh, think that it's over. You know, you have the antiretroviral drugs and now you have PrEP, it's over. And it's not. Um, it's not over. The education is um, not out there enough. You know, I will I will admit myself, before this documentary, I did not know about undetectable equals undetectable. I had absolutely no idea. That is something I found out while... U equals U, untransmissible equals undetectable. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I had no idea about that. That was something that I learned um, while making this documentary and doing my research. So, and so many people do not know about PrEP. Uh, so many people do not know that HIV is uh, a problem, is, is an issue that needs to be tackled. Um, just in, in Birmingham, uh, when we were uh, shooting in Birmingham at the hotel that we were staying at, there was... Um, the guy who was helping us with our uh, with our bags, uh, you know, he saw a whole bunch of camera equipment and got super excited. I was like, what are you filming? Are you do filming a movie? So we were like, no, we're filming a documentary on HIV. And he was like, what? HIV? Is that here? That's not there in the South, surely. You know, isn't that over? Isn't that, you know, and, and so, you know, uh, he was one person. And fortunately, I was able to have a conversation with him to, to be like, no, no, it's, you know, safe sex, practice safe sex. Uh, it, it's definitely still here. So it's it, it's that it's it's informing the people today where where it came, how it came, how it affected, especially the LGBTQ group in the eighties, uh, where we are in the present, and what we need to do to really get to zero in the future. What the tools are and how we need to implement them. There's something very nice about the documentary in that it intertwines a number of stories. The experience of San Francisco, the experience of Birmingham, Alabama, the experience um, of uh, our forefathers, if we may call them that, in the scientific field who helped lead us to partly to where we are today. And then this hugely exciting science that we see uh, now taking us to this next level. And then, of course, this interaction between, uh, as, as you as you did, as you mentioned, you know the fact that the LGBTQ community, certainly the urban and largely white uh, communities, were able to access uh, medications. But many, many communities, that last mile community in Birmingham and San Francisco, still need to access those tools. And I, I wonder, Monica, perhaps, perhaps the good news first. You you come across in the documentary with. Um, such optimism and enthusiasm about the potential of these um, new advances. Um, my first question, I guess, around this is, for those who can access them, do you think of HIV as a chronic, manageable disease for your patients now? 
Oh, yes. I mean, actually, <laughs> there's so much optimism, I think, in all of infectious diseases. It's, it's true in COVID as well, because it is the other. It is not, um, it is an infect, an infectious disease enters your body. And we can have tools that target that infection. So there's no doubt that HIV, you know, does stay in the body, unfortunately, working on cure, um, but not there yet. But we have so many medications, especially in the US and Europe. We have so many more options, unfortunately, than other places. But we have so many medications that, yes, make it live so that the first thing, I, I don't think I said this in the documentary, but the first thing I say to someone when they're newly diagnosed is, I hope that in six months, like this is not the first thing you think about, but you think about like, do you need milk um, or something totally different? Because this is, I want you to be able to know that you're going to live a totally normal life, taking a pill a day or maybe taking an injection, but it can go back to complete normal. And that's what I think infectious disease should always message. It's always a different pathogen and we can fight it. It doesn't mean, I mean, since the documentary came out, it's interesting to see UNAIDS and the US talk about all the setbacks to HIV during COVID, which was expected, but it's, 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 really depressing, you know, that there are 650,000 people who died of AIDS last year. So that, I keep on trying to put that in perspective. So one death a minute. So that means mm. that we're, we, we're going to talk here for 45 minutes, 45 people will have died. It's really important to see, say that, you know, 40.3 million people have died of AIDS since the beginning, that 38.4 million people are living with HIV, and that we only 28.8 million people have access to antiretroviral therapy. So they've been out for more than 20 years, the cocktail, like you say. So this, this is, the stuff to work on is actually not the science, which is really amazing in advance. It's to work on distribution and equitable distribution and global equity and people wanting the stigma in the United States that would make you not want to seek care or go into the HIV clinic sign, like you just said. So th this is what we had to work on. This is actually so interwoven with our politics and our way of behaving towards each other, HIV, and we can actually work on both. Yeah. Uh, you, you link the uh, local, the national with the global. And, you know, one, one of the challenges, I think, for, for those of us working in the, the international response to AIDS um, is to, in asking the question, are we going to end HIV? It's a, it's a tall order. It's a long way away. Um, but I think one of the things that really struck me um, again around the documentary was that some of the, a lot of the experiences that um, hard to reach communities in San Francisco and Birmingham, that those were experiences that were very similar in the suburbs of Johannesburg or in Kuala Lumpur or in Yunnan province in China. And, and Tommy, I, I, I wonder if you could um, just sort of share your experience working with um, marginalized communities in, in, in Birmingham who, uh, you know, who don't necessarily have the same level of trust in the health system that, that perhaps one would hope for. What has that been like? Um, what is it like uh, to live with HIV in, in Alabama? Well, well, um, then I will say that um, my experience with uh, living with HIV is, I believe, very similar to a lot of uh, my peers and also very different. And I, I want to start by saying that um, thank you so much for the work that you do, uh, Monica. Um, we are, we have a, a, a long way, we've come a long way. And we have a long way to go. And I say this because I am unapologetic, okay, <laughs> this next statement, is that when I was hearing you talk about um, one after diagnosis being able to transition into a space where, you know, li uh, uh, where life goes on and there is this total sense of uh, reclamation and, and normalcy that happens, after one engages in care, I've always classified that as uh, like an uh, over-optimistic rhetoric because there is 
taking medication, regardless of what it is, if it's a pill a day, a two-month injection, which I am privileged to be receiving right now, or maybe a future uh, implant that lasts six months or a year even, is the smallest percent of what it takes for us to live normal, to like go back to normal. I have been undetectable for so long, I don't even count the years anymore. I have um, found myself in spaces where I can exercise so much privilege that I don't even really think about that anymore, although I am not removed from my community. However, I am so far from the normalcy that I experienced pre-diagnosis that it blows my mind still today. I, I feel less than. And this is an advocate that's speaking right now, okay? Um, somebody who's been doing this work, and, and I'm not counting the years that I've been working um, on my full-time job, but the years in which I had said, there is a need in my community. So I've been doing this work for over, about 25 years now, to some degree. And I, it, it's, it troubles me to see my community struggle so much with not only just diagnosis, I love fur babies, and not only, uh, not only, <laughs> yes, my cat is like, I'm going to sit in your lap doing this. Um, but, um, but not only seeing individuals struggle with diagnosis, that breaks my heart, but also seeing them too, uh, Monica's point and yours as well, Cheyenne, and I believe when you mentioned also, it's just the issue of um, the stigma associated with going into healthcare facilities and just accessing care and you know, being uh, medically adherent to medication. We, because I'm thinking about it, it, I think what bothers me the most with uh, your statement, Monica, and it's it's not because you, it's not because you said it, it's because I wish that it was so. That's very fair. Yeah, that's very fair. I mean, it's why we're working on cure, and 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 it's and it's a very fair statement to make that it's it's transforming. So thank you. Yeah. Yes. Is is yeah. It's the individuals are like hiding medications if they can, you know, because I, I I think the only the people who have the luxury of hiding medications are the ones who also have the luxury to be housed. You know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, people, we are still diagnosing individuals are, are still coming in with advanced HIV disease or AIDS, as many of us uh, like to call it. And I, I, and, I, I, and I know I'm touching on a lot of things here because I because I have to. OK, then forgive me. And I, I recognize your question and I wanted to hit on it just a little bit, but then I wanted to kind of talk about some of the things that I've heard. And so the other thing that I did hear uh Cheyenne of course you making the distinction about like um the the how HIV has evolved uh in the beginning like there was this AIDS term of course and we still use AIDS today and of course there were other terms as well that we we've not gotten into and maybe we don't have to really because they're they're not um I, I don't see it as valuable as as you know encouraging people to go and seek care um however um you, I heard like HIV transition, AIDS transition into there being the term of HIV being used. And I like to believe, and of course, I'm not an individual who's sitting here with a doctorate or, you know, I'm not a physician. I don't have these, uh, this level, this higher level of education, which I did. And a lot of people seem to think that I do, but I don't. And, um, but I like to believe that HIV has always been, been a thing. Uh, the disease the disease has not changed. Science has changed in how we're able to treat and manage it, yes. Okay. So, but when people were being diagnosed back in the early 80s, um, they were being diagnosed late. And they had acquired an immune deficiency syndrome. And that is happening in 2022. With the advancement of, of science and medicine, we still have that today. So science and medicine is not going to end HIV. It's, it's not going to do it. Injections are not going to do it. Implants are not going to do it because it's not done. And we've made huge strides and it hasn't done it. But education 
And communication is the only thing I believe that's going to do that. And until we're able to figure out how we can have these these fruitful conversations in educating individuals and we are having a call to action that's making them move, it's going to change the stigma. It's going to change access. It's going to you know, change everything is going to change at at that point. And and with that, I appreciate the time. <laughs> no, not at all, Tommy. I think you have you've highlighted very articulately the challenges that I think we all work to address, but that really come out of the documentary <coughs> "Ending HIV in America." And, and Monica, I I would love to put it back to you again. We, you know, one of the things that comes out of the documentary is that. In many regards, Birmingham and San Francisco face very similar challenges in reaching patients who present with late-stage symptoms. These are people with advanced HIV disease. These are people who are marginally housed. And, and so I just wonder how Tommy's experience resonates with much of the work that you're doing at Ward 86. Yes, I mean, our uh Oh, we're we're losing you, Monica, with the um, with the links to uh, Brazil. I thought we were doing so well, but uh, we'll come back to you in just a second. Uh, meanwhile, um, Shion, let me come to you. And we've spoken about treatment. Let's talk about prevention briefly. And um, you're a young queer man. The documentary addresses pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is the use of these antiretrovirals for... Welcome back, Monica. We'll come on to you in just a second. We know how it is. (laughs) Okay, and I'll say quickly. Yeah, sorry about that. So I I, I was just asking Cheyenne to to comment about PrEP and how um, you truly are a baby, um, Cheyenne, (laughs) having been born in 1985. And I'm even going to reveal, Tommy, the date of my birth. Forget that. That's a state secret. Um, but, but you cover PrEP very optimistically in the documentary. And I, so I would like to know, how has it, how has it affected you personally in your life? Well, I'm on, I'm on PrEP. I'm a proud, proud taker of PrEP. Um, so I recommend it. Uh, I also realize, um, I, so I have, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm diabetic as well. Um, and, um, I've had, uh, uh, blood pressure, genetic blood pressure issues, thanks to my family. Uh, so I've been taking pills since I was, uh, 22. Um, you know, I've been taking pills for my blood pressure, um, and then recently my, uh, diabetes as well. So I am sort of used to taking, uh, medication every day, um, but I realize it it is it isn't easy for people to take um, to take uh, pills every day. You do forget, and it's and it's perfectly normal, and it's natural, and it's human nature to forget. Um, but I think so. A pill a day is great. I mean, from where we were uh, back in the eighties to where we are now is it's a huge jump, and it's a wonderful um, tool that we have, and it's it's something that makes me feel very safe um and and happy um but i also understand that a daily pill can uh, does not work um for everyone it it works for people like me that that you know that are housed that are um you know that that have a job that don't have to worry about um other survival things um and can and can take the pill but if you're homeless if you're you know, if you, if you're a drug user, you know there are so many obstacles um, that prevent you from from taking uh, taking a pill a day. That what I am optimistic about are the um, are the injections, are the long acting prep uh, solutions that uh, Monica talks about in the film. Um, you know, it, I I hope we can get to a stage where you know. It can be maybe an annual injection or it can be a biannual injection or something like that that just reduces the frequency of having to take um, uh, take the medication. So so we can reach um, as as broad um, a, a, a population as, as possible, really. So, Monica, great to have you back. Um, and delighted that the um, Internet, I hope, is working. <laughs> um, 
although I see the screen is frozen, but um, <laughs> I guess the question that I would I would put to you, coming back to it, and it's, it's something that Shion has, I think, re-emphasized. We have this extraordinary innovation in front of us, but the implementation challenges. And as you heard Tommy and Shion speak, you, you know, the implementation challenges for you, Ward 86 in San Francisco, how to get to that last mile. What are your thoughts? You know, so we just had the San Francisco Epidemiology Surveillance Report come out this week and shows exactly what you just said, that it's really people who are homeless that have the lowest rates of neurologic suppression, only around 22%. Um, it's uh, Black and Latino MSM who are more likely to be newly diagnosed with HIV. And absolutely there are disparities by poverty and by insurance status. And so this is how I think of it. We need to do special work for these populations. We have a program called Pop-Up for Homeless Patients, which is actually trying to meet them where they are. So Pop-Up is kind of like a pop-up restaurant, but it means you can come in anytime, no appointments, low barrier access, the same people see you, um, a loving group of people. And we, we will, um, you know, of course, we're working on antiretroviral, uh, people taking their antiretrovirals, but we're doing a lot of long-acting injectables, even if you're not neurologically suppressed. That's not how they were studied, but these are the patients who needed the most. Mm. And then we'll go out and find them. We'll do mobile care. And you have to meet them. Yes, it is the last 10%, and that's the hardest group to reach. So it just takes a lot of work and resources, but it's so worth it and we can do it. Yeah, and, and um, one of the things that comes out in the documentary is the extraordinary street outreach uh, happening uh, by, by one of your partners, the San Francisco Community Health Center in San Francisco's Tenderloin, where a lot of homeless and injection drug uh, using people live. Um, I... I Shion, there's there's something else about the documentary. Given everything that you've uh, you've said, that I'd like to ask, there is the wonderful history um, of how we got to the development of antiretrovirals, how we understood the science around pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, and then um you know the the extraordinary impact of treatment as u equals u meaning that people with hiv um who are fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy can essentially live their lives free of the uh, of 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 this sort of cloud of hiv hanging over them but there's also a part in the documentary as you look forward where with you know the next generation of clinical leaders like monica um, and like <clears throat> one of uh, Tommy's colleagues, um, Letitia Elopre, um, were, were you very conscious of putting forward a story of the future uh, that represented, how shall I put this, that didn't fit the stereotype of what we expect of clinical science and clinical scientists? Well, what is it that we expect? Let <laughs> <laughs> well, in the first part, we see a lot of, let's be honest, and they're fantastic people, but we see a lot of men in white coats. Mm. Um, and that's not oh. the reality of HIV, right? <laughs> okay. Yes. Oh, thank you, Tommy. Yes. Um, I mean, look, there, was, there, is a, uh, there is a wonderful quote by Letitia in the movie where, they, where, where she says, you know, people have a feeling that medical innovations and science is being done in an ivory tower. Um, and it has to be brought down to people that look like me and Tommy and Monica. Um, sorry, Ben. Uh, but, you know, there is, and there, and it has to be from people in the community because whether it's, it's intentional or not, when you have somebody, uh, when you have sort of a white man uh, lecturing you about what you should or should not do, it does come across a little patronizing. You know, it does, it comes across a little disengaged that you don't know the realities of my um, my situation. You don't know the realities of my community. Uh, why are you, 
you know, lecturing me on something that I should do or should not do. You don't understand what, uh, what, uh, what I'm going through. So, you know, it is very important for, for people in the community to take charge of this and to become, uh, you know, and to be empowered enough to go out into their community and say, you know, this, this is, you know, we, we get, you know, the struggles that you're going through. And, you know, that's where the empathy element comes from. Mm. Uh, and you, and, and that is very important for just somebody to feel human again, you know, because you, you see so many people and I, and, and I spoke to a lot of people in the Tenderloin, unfortunately, because of time, we couldn't really um, include that too much in the movie, but, you know, so many people in the, in, in the Tenderloin who just, you know, told me that, you know, we just want to be treated as human beings, you know, we don't want to be given lectures on, you know, you are at risk, you know, da, da, da. you need to do this, you need to do that. We want to be treated as human beings. We want somebody that understands our situation, understands that we are human beings with faults and, you know, we, we, we are in, in, in a circumstance that we don't want to be, but, you know, and then approach us with that, um, with that level of empathy, with that level of understanding. And so I think that is very important. So there's sort of one, uh, I guess, final question that, that I'd want to put to you all, and I know we're coming up to the, to, to, to the top of the hour. One of the, the topics that is not covered in the documentary, because it is so recent, um, is the monkeypox outbreak, the global outbreak. And I, Tommy, if I could start with you, how have uh, how have you and your colleagues in Birmingham addressed this? And you know how much monkeypox are you seeing? Uh, so I think to the surprise of um, our entire interdisciplinary staff, we are seeing more monkeypox than we believe that we would. Um, now we did um, get information through the health department that there was um, a, a larger. Um, outbreak that was being experienced in um, our neighboring state of Georgia in Atlanta. And so a lot of our uh, community go to Atlanta to exercise experiences and thereby increasing um, monkeypox transmission here in Birmingham and then end up being uh, one of the patients that we see, whether it's in um, our outpatient infectious disease clinic or through our emergency department. Um, so we don't particularly have a protocol where we are um, administering any vaccines in our clinic at this time. And I don't know if that's something that we will be doing, but we are seeing all patients and um, providing whatever care that is uh, needed for the, for the particular patients that we see. And, um, and, and finally, uh, we are offering uh, monkeypox vaccines to uh, to the general, uh, you know what, actually, I don't know if we're offering it to the general public because we recently just received a communication saying that um, that hospital staff can actually get um, get vaccines. So, you know, um, it's, it's a work in progress and um, it's front of mind, of course, and um, and, and it's an unfortunate situation because I, I believe that as uh, queer people, we've had enough of infectious diseases being attributed to us or at least spread of them. Um, and I see, or at least in the beginning, I've not queued into any news sources recently, but in the beginning, um, monkeypox was no different. Um, they, were, they were definitely giving that to uh, gay men. And um, yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I, it, it really shook me to the uh, to the core to see some extremely brave people on Twitter, particularly, um, talking about uh, their infection with monkeypox and even showing some of the lesions. And mm -hmm. it took you back. It took you right back. Well, we are really coming to the close for this podcast, hoping that we can. Uh, work the internet gods and goddesses and connect uh, Monica in for this sort of wrap-up question. Um, if we can't, I'll find a way of uh, incorporating uh, an answer um, from her. But 
So my one final question for you, are we going to end AIDS, end, sorry, are we going to end? And isn't it interesting that I keep saying ending AIDS? That's the mindset that we've I, been I living in. Schooled yeah. During the making of the documentary, I've been schooled by Tommy. I will never use it again. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. You, 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 Tommy, you see a dinosaur in front of you, an AIDS dinosaur that can only think in these terms. Okay, so let me put the question correctly. Are we going to end HIV in America? Tommy, you start... Oh, goodness. Are we going to end it? Ben. <laughs> the two of us need look no more. <laughs> okay. Oh, I don't, I, I would love to believe that one day we will end HIV in America. Yeah, and in in a dream that I've not had, we ended HIV in America. Uh, but when I think as realistic as realistically as my my brain will allow me to think, um, th th there will not be an end. Uh, there would just be a very low number of cases. Mm. You know, but but an end for me is just zero, zero, not just zero new transmissions, um, but it's just no one living with the uh, uh, the uh, shadow of HIV looming over them. And, and some will probably say, well, no, it's just a, a, a block that I stand on to see further out, like however we, you know, put HIV in our lives, it it would it won't be in any lives, you know, yeah. any living people. And I, I just don't see that happening. Um I I I wish that I could say I wish that I could say that I do. But there there are just too many they Cheyenne earlier said that um if and, and I'm this I'm trying not to quote, but if I was born 10 years earlier, I might have experienced HIV differently. Um, and I'm thinking, well, I am, you know, giving a new diagnosis to people who were born 20 years later. <laughs> and, 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 and HIV is their new reality. And so, you know, as long as I continue to, to give an HIV diagnosis to a 15-year-old Black man, a boy, young man, it's hard for me to conceptualize an end to HIV in America. Cheyenne, you get the last word. <laughs> um, you, 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 the documentary, the PBS Nova documentary, ending HIV in America. Um, it's upbeat. It's positive. It is. Um, it's a testament to the extraordinary work that we have all done all of us, um, over the last few decades. Um, uh, is this an optimistic title or is it a challenge to us? I would say it's a challenge uh, because, you know, we have the tools and I do not doubt that medical science is going to advance even more as we, as, uh, you know, in the, in the years to come. But as, you know, I've tried to highlight in the film, um, is that you know it's really the frontline uh, cases that uh, that need to be dealt with the last mile as we uh, as we talk about um, you know the the people that are mar on the margins on the fringes you know that cannot access housing or cannot access adequate health care you know HIV uh, will will not end till you you know till everyone gets on board you know. Healthcare, it's, it's it's so politicized, and, and I don't want to get into that that or that side of the argument, but it's still so politicized, it's still so uh, polarizing, you know, especially uh, sexually transmitted diseases, so polarized mm -hmm. and uh, all over the world, and especially in America, that it it will not happen till we all get on board. We we really all have to get on board and say stop this disease, you know, mm -hmm. and rather than placing judgment on 
um, HIV uh, patients, you know, and saying that they're they were you know uh, they were frivolous, responsible. Yeah. Yes, and, and it's yeah. it's their you know it, it's their bad decision, so it's kind of their fault. Until we remove the stigma, until we all really get on board and say, okay, um, sex is natural, mistakes happen, and you know we have to we have to address it that way. Yeah, uh, not in a judgmental way. Yeah. Well, uh, I would, I would love to ask Monica the same question, and we will find a way of doing so, and hopefully slot it into this podcast. But in the meantime, Tommy Williams, Shyam Matra, you are both shots in the arm. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for highlighting the film. Thank you. Thank you all so so much. We all just want to be loved. So let's love on each other. Love you, Tommy. I love you as well, Cheyenne, and you as well, Ben. And you Thanks too, Thanks for my Tommy. shot. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we were able to track Monica down, and I was able to ask her that last question. Can we end HIV in America? And here's what she said. Yes, we can end HIV in America. Actually, we have prevention tools. We have treatment. The combination of both of those have been shown in models that we can get to zero. We can eliminate HIV. But what it's going to take is judges in Texas not deciding that they can't fund PrEP or that companies don't have to put on their insurance PrEP. It will take not stigmatizing people for something that they absolutely cannot change and is absolutely what makes them beautiful, which is being gay. And it will take that we have to think about every patient differently. Maybe this person wants injectables. Maybe this person wants treatment uh, with oral. Just think creatively. We can absolutely do this, but there was no reason that we haven't so far. We need an incredible degree of political commitment. UNH 2022 in danger report was dismal that we've taken such setbacks during COVID-19 to HIV. It's time to reapply ourselves and end HIV in America. Please, please, in my lifetime, please. So that's it for this episode. Thanks to Tommy, Shion, and of course to Monica. Thanks to everyone at PBS Nova, HHMI Tangled Bank, and the Global Health Reporting Center, particularly to Gabriel Roy, our production assistant, and to Janet Tobias, Roger Lopez, Caleb Hellerman and Veronica Aranova, keeper of Hermione's magic bag. Thanks also to Eric Espera from Newsdoc Media, our director and producer. And finally, thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. <laughs>